Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. We're very happy to have you here at the Scholar. Um, some quick housekeeping to go over. As always, we have several uh, exciting upcoming events. Uh, stay tuned to our website, our social media pages, and take an events newsletter up at the front of the store as you leave. Lots of good stuff happening, as always. And all these events are free and open to the public. Uh, just one I want to highlight is in a few weeks with, uh, her name is R.O. Kwan. She's uh, just written a novel called The Incendiaries. It's very good. She's kind of blowing up. So we're happy to have her in a couple weeks. Uh, moving on, I have the pleasure and honor of introducing our speakers here this evening. Uh, directly to my left here is Adrienne Sue, who is the author of four books of poetry. Her poems have been featured on websites such as Poetry Daily and Poem A Day and Poetry Foundation. Sue's awards include a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a Pushcart Prize, and residencies at Yaddo, McDowell, The Frost Place, and many, many others. Since 2000, she has taught creative writing at Dickinson College, where she is poet in residence. To my far left is Catherine Chung. She is the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship and a Director's Visitorship at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. She was a Granta New Voice and won an honorable mention for the Penn Hemingway Award with her first novel, Forgotten Country. She has a degree in mathematics from the University of Chicago and worked at a think tank in Santa Monica before going to Cornell University for her MFA. She has published work in the New York Times and Granta and is a fiction editor at Guernica Magazine. She lives in New York City. Of course, we are here this evening for Catherine's brand new novel, The Tenth Muse. It is a recommended book of the year from such outlets as the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, Oprah Magazine, BuzzFeed, Entertainment Weekly, BBC, The Millions, Lit Hub, I could go on and on, uh, but many other outlets have recommended uh, The Tenth Muse this year. Uh, it has also received countless support and praise from the writing community. Rebecca Mackay writes, ambitious, mesmerizing, and immersive, The Tenth Muse gives us a character we'd follow anywhere, and journeys well worth following her on. And not only that, it is a, a personal favorite here from me and uh, other booksellers here at The Scholar, so we're very happy to have Catherine here at The Scholar. So thank you again to Catherine and Adrian uh, for joining us here in Harrisburg this evening. So please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Um, thank you so much for having me. This is, I think, maybe one of the most beautiful bookstores I've ever seen. So I'm very excited to be here. Um, I thought I'd start out by reading you just a couple pages from the opening of my book and then to make things interesting. I thought I would read you a math problem. Um, I guess I should say that the narrator, the protagonist of my book is a mathematician. Uh, and she's in her late 70s and is sort of looking back on her life. So it begins with an invocation. Everyone knows that once upon a time there were nine muses. They were known as the daughters of Zeus, and wise men loved them, for they bestowed the gift of genius. Sing in me, O muse, cried Homer, and the muses answered, filling his voice and spinning out his mortal talents to make immortal tales. What not everyone knows is that once there existed another sister who chose a different path. She was the youngest of them and the most reckless. And when she came of age and it was time to claim an art, she shook her head and she refused. She said she did not wish to sing in the voices of men, telling only the stories they wished to tell. She preferred to sing her songs herself. Her sisters were shocked at this rebellion from their most beloved sister and ordered her to push these dreams aside. Don't you know the rule, they said, that the price of your dearest wish is always everything you have. 
but her dreams were her dreams, and she was stubborn. And when she refused to turn from them, her sisters offered her their own gifts to choose from, in the hopes that one of them might tempt her. You may have the epic poem, said Calliope, the most powerful among them. Just put away this notion, and you may have anything you wish. But the tenth muse would not be commanded thus, nor tempted. And in the end, her sisters bowed their heads, and weeping, prepared to bid their youngest one goodbye. Their tears turned to stars that they hung in her hair, and formed a shimmering veil down her back. The sisters called the birds to sing to her, and the crickets and the centaurs, all the sweet-voiced animals in the world. They gave her everything they could in that kingdom of immortals, hoping she would stay, knowing if she left, she could take nothing with her, but she would go. And so the tenth muse was stripped of her title and her gifts and immortality. I say stripped, though she was the one who shrugged them off as lightly as a dress and laid them quietly aside. What she received in turn was no more, no less than exactly what she'd asked for, a voice to sing with what she would. But of course her voice was now a woman's voice in a mortal woman's body and could bring her death or worse. Still, she never once looked back, choosing to walk among us mortals to the end. She made her fate a human matter, and this is why of all the muses, I cannot help but love her best. Since then, she has told a thousand stories. She has lived a hundred lives. She is born again in every generation. Sappho, Hypatia, Scheherazade, Wolf, and all the rest, unhailed, unnamed, erased. Returning and returning, she is the tale embodied. Long may she live again. Um, and then now I'm going to read just the opening pages of the very first chapter before we get to the math problem. Um, there is nothing as intriguing as a locked door, which is why in 1900, when David Hilbert presented the first of his 23 unsolved mathematical problems in his address to the Second International Congress of Mathematicians in Paris, he changed the course of scientific inquiry and thereby the course of the world. 23 locked doors to beguile the foremost minds of his time, 23 locked doors to stand in front of and circle throughout the century. To this day, 12 of these problems remain unsolved. In my youth, I dreamed of scaling the heights myself and drawing forth a solution as gleaming and perfect as Excalibur. One day, I told myself, I would open one of Hilbert's fabled doors, join the honors class of mathematicians who have conquered one of those 23 problems, whose names will be known throughout time. I've lived long enough to know now that no matter what one's contributions, one falls in and out of favor, even Hilbert, even Einstein. For now, I am in the amusing, slightly awkward position of finding that while my reputation is on the rise, my actual presence, my opinion, my thoughts are less relevant than ever. I'm invited less and less to participate in things that involve actual math. Nobody asks me to advise or work with them anymore. I suppose everyone is waiting for me to die. Certainly no one expects me to be on the cusp of a new discovery, but here's a secret. I've recently found a key to a door that has long been hidden, a mystery I feel I was born to unravel. And not just any mystery, but a door that could lead to the solution of part of the eighth and most famous of Hilbert's problems, the Riemann hypothesis, which predicts a meaningful pattern hidden deep within the seemingly chaotic distribution of prime numbers. I've told no one yet, because I know that until I have all the evidence in order, I'll be laughed at, the same as if I suddenly announced I'd fallen in love. At my age, 
All passions look foolish to outside eyes. If I were a man, it'd be different. I don't mean that as an admission of envy, but as a statement of fact, because who has time for envy anymore? The days speed by so quickly, gaining momentum with each passing month. The fear that I'll die before I get to the end fuels my work, and I wake with an urgency that feels like an echo from youth, a reflection of the desperation I felt in my early years when I feared I'd miss my chance. Okay, so to make this interesting, I thought I would offer a prize. Um, so to the first person who solves this math problem, I will give you a copy of my book, and I will also um, give you a copy of Adrian's book, if we can find it in the bookstore, and if not, I will mail it to you. Um, and, and so, and I guess I should also add that the person to solve this the quickest actually solved the problem before I finished reading the problem. And the youngest person to solve this at a reading was nine years old. So, no pressure. <laughs> <clears throat> this is the problem. Say there's a girl and a boy, and they're madly in love with each other, but they live on opposite sides of a lake that neither of them can cross. The boy wants to marry the girl and buys a ring to propose. There's a ferryman who goes back and forth on the lake. In his boat, he carries a box on which you can put any lock. If you put something in the box, he'll take it across to the other side, but unless the box is locked, he'll steal whatever you give him before he reaches the shore. Either way, he can go back and forth across the lake as often as you ask him to. The boy has one lock and the key to his lock, and the girl has another lock and the key to her lock. How does the boy get her the ring? I solved this problem for extra credit on my final exam in Peter Hall's class my first semester of graduate school. Peter liked to give freebie brain teasers at the ends of his exams for anyone who had extra time, which few people attempted since they were generally entangled in the actual problems, and because the extra credit questions were worth very little points-wise. This one had been worth the constant E, a little less than three points in a 100-point exam. Another had been worth pi. In any case, Peter Hall called me into his office after the exam, and when I walked in, he said I had received the highest score in the class on the exam by E plus five points. He congratulated me. I've never received an irrational test score before, I quipped. <laughs> ha, Peter said, in a way that made me immediately wonder how many students had made the same joke before me. I looked at the equations on the chalkboards behind him, and then down at his gleaming wood desk. I felt tongue-tied and inexplicably shy. You should know that the extra credit problem you solved is one of the foundational problems of modern cryptography, he said, and you were the only one to solve it. He reached across his desk and shook my hand. Congratulations, I've got my eye on you. I blushed. You have to understand, he was Peter Hall, the most famous mathematician on the faculty, maybe in America, appealing in that rumpled scientist way, and he had his eye on me. He'd written a problem that in our class only I had solved, and he'd couched it in a language of love, then revealed it to belong to the domain of cryptography. I was in over my head before we began. The problem I'd solved, that I felt sure he'd written for me, had drawn me in as only a mathematical problem could. Bounded, defined, it was a puzzle to break your head over until a solution appeared. Everything leading up to it a struggle, but the answer itself effortless as a drawn breath. Let's take another look at the problem. The boy and the girl across the lake. He can get her the ring if you find the solution. 
No need to rush. This isn't a timed exam. And in the story, the girl and boy never age. Nothing will happen to them until you've figured it out. No one will fall in love with anyone else. No war will break out to take anyone away. No one will fall sick or die. So take your time. Later, when we come back to them, they'll still be there, the shining lake and the old ferryman between them, waiting for us to bring them together. Thank you. I'm waiting for the entries. Oh, for if anybody solved it. If anybody solved it. Did, oh, oh, we've got a taker. <laughs> because it's a math problem. <laughs> do that but then she wouldn't really get the ring she would just see it locked onto a box so that's like a creative sort of half solution <laughs> but I feel like sometimes people want the ring that's been bought for them and not to just be like whenever I want to see it <laughs> I can just ask the ferryman to, to bring it by and I'll like look at it yeah but that was actually a pretty good yeah that was a pretty good suggestion yes Did everybody hear that? Congratulations. <laughs> what is your name? Can you say it again? Tylet. Okay, awesome. That was amazing. Congratulations. Did anybody else have it? No? Oh, you guys didn't hear it. Okay, so this is the answer. Um, you put the ring in the box. The boy puts the ring in the box and locks it. And then he sends it across, and the girl puts her lock on the box next to it. Um, and sends it back. And then he unlocks it with his key, sends it back to her, she unlocks it with her key, and then there's the ring in the box. And the reason that's a cryptography question is because when you wanna send encrypted messages, it's very insecure to send your code to the other person. Um, you know, because then that means that if they, if they break the code, if they find the code, they can unlock everything basically, right? So, so you scramble the data, you send it across, they scramble the data, send it back, you unscramble your data, send it back, they unscramble it and they have your message. And so there's no point at which the data is vulnerable. Yeah. That was amazing, congratulations. Well done. That was one of my favorite passages. The math problem. In the book, yes. Um, and it leads me to, I, I just thought of several questions I wanted to lead with as you read, but I will um, maybe ask a, a writerly strategy question, sure. which is that I think at first glance, people are not excited by academia and people are afraid of math as they are afraid of poetry, but you have made academia and math exciting, suspenseful, dramatic. Um, Do you not think that because you're a poet and an academic though? <laughs> <laughs> I think I could be bored by okay. a book okay. about academia, um, but anyway. Um, I just wonder if you did, uh, um, if you read a lot of other books about, I would say novels about these things, or did you have any other strategies that you used to make this exciting? So there aren't actually a lot of books that I was able to find, and particularly novels about mathematicians mm -hmm. or, I guess there are a lot of books about academics, but they yeah. always seem to be often about 
I don't know, I'm just gonna say something ridiculous and untrue, but I think that a lot of the books I've stumbled upon were yeah. about sort of like romantic, like love triangles between academics. Um, uh -huh. And so it's, it felt like a different kind, I mean, and I've enjoyed those books, but, it, but they felt sort of like different in nature mm -hmm. than the thing that I was trying to do. Right. Um, I think that for me, I've actually just always found both poetry and mathematics incredibly romantic. Yeah. And, um, and I, my parents were academics, and so, mm -hmm. you know, I was raised with sort of a passion for stories and a passion for language, but also for mathematics. Mm -hmm. My father was a mathematician, and so I don't know that I needed necessarily models um, in novels because mm -hmm. I felt like it was modeled for me in, in life. In life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's great. Um, I'm going to go to one of the sort of often quoted uh, Robert Frost sayings about writing. No surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Uh -huh. that in the writing process, the writer needs to kind of get to that point where the, the work takes on a life of its own and surprises the author. Um, and I think one of the most exciting things about The Tenth Muse is that it has this sort of unraveling and opening up of a pretty intricate storyline um, that would probably require a lot of advanced planning to write. You can't just kind of wander into the story, but I don't know, you're looking like maybe you <laughs> did. Um, but I wonder how much planning ahead did you do and what were some of the surprises for you? Oh, I'm not a good planner. Um, uh -huh. So I didn't do that much advanced planning. Wow. I mean, I knew she was a mathematician, um, mm -hmm. but that's, I don't know if that's planning or just choosing what your character will do. <laughs> um, so I, so I knew a couple things going in. I knew that she would be a mathematician. I knew that I wanted to structure the book um, in a way that wasn't totally linear. So mm -hmm. I, actually, her, the way that she narrates her life story is linear, but I knew that I wanted to um, experiment with that a little bit to, mm -hmm. to have a, a different kind of story somewhere in the middle that, mm -hmm. that exerted its, its gravity, because mm -hmm. I, but I didn't know how I would do that if that makes sense. I just knew yeah. that I wanted to complicate the way that she was telling her story because her story is complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and those were maybe the two things that I knew going in. I knew that she would have a love interest. One of the surprises was that I thought he would be a villain. Um, and so I named him after someone I didn't like. And then, <laughs> but then I sort of fell in love with him. Um, and, and so, you know, I, he isn't actually really a villain in the book, mm -hmm. I, I don't think. Like, he, it just, their relationship becomes more complicated. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was, that was a surprise. And the other sort of surprises I had were that I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to write about a woman mathematician and tell the story of her life. And I knew that I wanted to tell inside her story the stories of these very, um, these very sort of badass, I don't even know another word for it, um, historical mathematicians mm -hmm. who were women. Because when I started, the, actually, so the seed for this book came because I read this article about the five most influential women mm -hmm. mathematicians in history. And their stories were crazy. Um, there's this woman named Sophie Germain who taught herself Greek and Latin. She taught herself two languages so that she could read her brother's math textbooks. 
And um, then she posed as a schoolboy and asked for lecture notes from the most famous mathematicians in France at the time because it was a time when she was not allowed to attend university. And in fact, her parents were incredibly against her math studies and they used to not light her fire um, at night because they thought, well, if it's too cold, mm -hmm. she won't be able to study. And so when she almost died because she continued to study and caught a terrible cold, they were like, fine, you can study. And she ended up solving this problem that won her the French National Prize in mathematics. And then she ended up being able to teach at the university that did not allow women to attend, right? And so I read about her and I thought, damn. Um, <laughs> And I read about Emmy Noter, who's also mentioned in this book, who is, so she's considered the founder of modern algebra. Um, she's also considered one of sort of the founders of quantum mechanics. And um, she did the algebra that undergirds Einstein's theory of general relativity. So she was tremendously important. And when, when under, actually, at Einstein's recommendation, um, the math department at the University of Göttingen, which at the time was the biggest, you know, was the most prestigious math department in the world, invited her to come um, and work with them. The, the, so it was actually the philosophy and law departments in that university rose up in protest and they said it will be the end of higher education if this woman is allowed to teach. And so they eventually reached a compromise and the compromise was that she could teach for no pay under a man's name. So all of her classes were under the name of the head of the math department. And um, that, but, but because, you know, but because she was allowed to teach, she brought up actually almost an entire generation of um, the most influential algebraists that followed her, and they were called Noter's boys. And she was the first person to be fired um, when the Nazis came to power because she was not only a woman, she was also Jewish. And they brought her over to Princeton, to the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, um, and then the president refused to hire her and instead paid her salary. He paid her salary at another institution, at Bryn Mawr, um, which is such a strange thing, right? Like they committed themselves to saving her. And then she actually ended up taking a train on her own dime once a week to basically teach classes to a standing room only crowd of mathematicians. Um, and so I, I knew that I wanted to tell these stories, and I knew that I wanted to capture the spirit of this kind of um, powerful, confident, um, brilliant woman. And I think one of the surprises was less about the plot and more about, I find that writing is always this very humbling encounter with my own limitations. And so um, I st when I started the book, it actually started out being narrated. Um, I started out, and the narrator was actually a man who had been in love with, with my narrator, who, with my current narrator, right? So the protagonist was, was this woman that my narrator had loved and it hadn't worked out. And I realized, why have I given this man her story? And why have I given, why is he telling her story as if the most interesting thing about her is that he loved her? And so I realized, okay, like I have to tell this story in her voice. And when I, when, I changed, when I changed the narrator to be her, I made her a math historian instead of a mathematician. So she was a failed mathematician and she was telling the history of women in mathematics. And I thought, why? 
why am I telling, you know, like I'm telling these stories of real women, but for some reason my imagination um, isn't going to the logical step, which is making her this brilliant mathematician. And so I really sort of had to confront where that came from and to think about why I was doing mm -hmm. that. And then after that, you know, I made her this brilliant mm -hmm. woman mathematician. And so I think I was surprised constantly by um, how my own mind didn't cooperate with my plan. Mm -hmm. And then I think once I discovered the narrator and she started sort of talking to me, she really sort of led me ahead, if that makes sense, because she was more bold than I am, I think, and she was more courageous. And so she surprised, she surprised me, I guess, mm -hmm. and it was, it was wonderful. Sorry, that was a very long answer to a simple question. It's a fabulous answer. I mean, it's to, because it's This is why I'm a novelist. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think another thing that, that can be said about this novel is that it speaks to um, a very American, um, I don't know if it's a conflict, but just a situation mm -hmm. where in many families there's tension between a younger generation that wants to know the past and then an older generation that may have fled something horrible and wants to forget it. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's this, there are many ways in which the Tenth Muse addresses this American hunger for identity, which of course is much more complicated in Catherine's case, not you, that yeah. Catherine, um, than in sort of the average person, uh -huh. person situation. But I think it, it works as a, as a metaphor as well for that sort of desire to identify uh, where we've come from. And these are all sort of thematic things that I think people talk about after they read a book, but when you're writing it, do you think about that stuff? Or, or did you mostly just focus on writing a great story? So I don't know what I think about when I'm writing, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the thoughts sort of get put to the side because I feel like thinking is more actually for the editing slash revision mm -hmm. process. Um, but I think that the reason that Catherine's struggle with identity is so prevalent and why these themes arise in so many different ways is because, mm -hmm. you know, for whatever reason, it is um, a preoccupation of mine, I guess. Mm -hmm. it's, it's maybe something that I've thought a lot about. Um, I think that when you are the child of immigrants, there's so much of your personal history that's lost to you, whether your parents tell you things or not, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you grow up with people, you know, whose families grew up with your families, there's this collective history that happens um, where mm -hmm. people, you know, contradict each other or they tell the same story, but you have the sense of like richness of where you came from. Whereas I think for me, um, I, I grew up, my, my family lived in Korea, and you know, my extended family lived in Korea, and every time I visited Korea, I realized that my relatives who lived in Korea knew so much more than I did because they talked to each other and they would tell each other things that other people didn't want them to be telling, do you know? And so there's this way in which I think you have a sense of where you come from, um, and you have a sense of the contradictions, whereas I feel like I got kind of one story, um, and the stories, often hid the things that I wanted to know, maybe. Um, and they hinted at like deeper mysteries that I couldn't ever really unravel. And so I think that in everything I write, there might be sort of this question of history and mm -hmm. what, what do we know about our history and what don't we know about our history? And how does our history affect us even when we don't know it? Because I, I actually 
think, and I think that that's not just a personal question for me. I think about it in terms of communities and I also think about it in terms of countries, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I think that our, our histories, whether we know it or don't know it, sort of determines in a lot of ways like where we start out in life, but also where we go. There, there's this kind of other theme that's, I mean, there are a lot of themes that are just woven through this whole unfolding story. And one of them that just kept coming up in, for me, unexpected ways was the notion of intellectual property. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, there's plagiarism, <laughs> there's co authorship, there are independent scholars, such as the women mathematicians you're talking about who didn't have an official position or were kind of shoehorned into right. an unofficial official position. Um, and I think it all speaks to the complexity of originality. Mm -hmm. That scholars get scooped, um, writers publish books on the same topic at the same yeah. time because some idea just happens to be ripe at that moment. Yeah, it's like in the air, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, but I, I wonder um, if working on the novel sort of changed your ideas about originality and about creation and authorship? Yeah, you know, so I majored in math when I was in college, mm -hmm. and I feel like with, with writing, with creative writing, when you write a novel, there's really no question, mm -hmm. that I, I think, that um, something is, you know, that the novel is yours in a way, because you've sort of created it. I, with math and with science, often discoveries are who gets to the discovery first, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's an interesting distinction. And mm -hmm. I, I also think that for writers, there's often the whose stories can I steal, yeah. right? Like who can I write about? Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that that's, that's like an ethical question that I never thought about until mm -hmm. maybe I was writing this book. Um, Luckily, I wasn't writing about anybody that I knew, um, right? I mean, it was fiction, but mm -hmm. I think when I was younger, um, I definitely felt a longing sometimes to steal a story I had heard spoken by, mm -hmm. by a non-writer. You know, I, there's this like weird code of honor that writers sometimes <laughs> right. um, break, but usually it's like, oh, if a writer has told me a story, they're probably going to write about it. But, you know, if my you know, if my husband's cousin tells me a story, is it fair game? And, and I began, I guess, to think about, when I was writing this book, about how that act of sort of claiming ownership over somebody's mm -hmm. story can be a really fraught thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, you talked about being a math major. I think we're sort of wrap up at this point. Um, this. Well, and then you guys will be able to ask us questions, yes, and then we'll which will be fun. Yeah, hear from everyone else. Um, I think people always wonder what should an aspiring writer study in school, and there's um. a kind of assumption that it should be English, um, but it doesn't have to be at all. Um, yeah, I think no. sometimes. What did you study? East Asian studies. East Asian studies. Uh, okay. So, I wonder, did you? How did you know what to study? Um, and did you find that doing two things, because I know you wanted to be a writer from very early on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you consciously made the decision not to be an English major, maybe? How, so how my parents didn't want me to be an English major. Oh, okay. Um, so my parents, <laughs> my parents, but they also didn't want me to be a math major. Uh -huh. So I made one of these deals, which I think says a lot about my sort of 
character, mm -hmm. maybe not in a flattering way, where they definitely didn't want me to be an English major, or actually what they said was, why don't you double major in something mm -hmm. more practical? And, um, and then I fell in love with math. Actually, that, that sort of came from nowhere. I didn't expect it. And you know, my first year of college, I took a math class that was called Real Number Analysis. And it was all about, you know, I think the first problem set that we had was you know, defining the set of real numbers. Like, what is a set? What is a real number? And then the proofs that we had to do were prove that the set of real numbers is infinite. And there was just something, maybe like nobody in the audience is like, I don't know why that would be, but there was something like so exciting to me um, in just that proposition of like proving something so vast, right? That you, that you could say it sort of irrevocably. And mm -hmm. actually up until then I had wanted to be a poet, not a novelist. Mm -hmm. And I felt like math and poetry were so similar. Mm -hmm. um, and so I fell in love with it and I thought, well, I can study this and it will please me in the same way mm -hmm. that poetry pleases me. Um, and, you know, it, it won't be exactly what I wanted to do, um, and it won't be exactly what my parents want me to do, because I don't think that studying, you know, theoretical mathematics is considered any more practical than studying English literature. <laughs> and so I did that instead. Um, mm -hmm. And it was wonderful for me. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But in terms of what writers should and shouldn't mm -hmm. study, um, well, so I will say one thing. Like, I, I wanted to be a writer, not sort of a, uh, like an English scholar. So right. it, I'm not right. even sure that it would have necessarily made sense for me mm -hmm. to study mm -hmm. English literature in that way. Um, but I will also say, like, I, I think that there's so many questions of what writers should and shouldn't do and mm -hmm. what's the right path if you want to be a writer. And I feel like so much of it is kind of nonsense, really. You know, like, mm -hmm. it, like you have to write every day or um, you have to write only in the mornings or, you know, like, this is how to revise. I think nobody... Everybody knows what works for them, but nobody mm -hmm. really knows what will work for anybody else. And so I think, you know, you don't have to, obviously you don't have to study English. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think you have to write every day. And I, yeah. And I think that sometimes those rules often make people feel like they can't do something mm -hmm. when actually they could. Right. Yeah. Thanks. So we're gonna transition to the audience Q&A. So if you have a question, Thank raise you. your hand and I'll come around with the mic. I know Adrienne asked such good questions. Thank you. Oh, I, I was just curious from start to finish how long it took you with this novel. Um, so I came up with the very f first idea for it, I guess, maybe in 2012 or 2013, um, somewhere around the time that my first book came out. But it was just an idea. I was like, oh, I'm going to write about some women mathematicians. Um, and then... I think in 2013 or 2014, I sat down and started doing research. And I guess I turned in the first draft in 2017. So I don't know what that is. It's uh, four or five years. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. I think it's funny that I wrote a book about math and I'm like, I can't actually do I the know. math to figure out how many years that took me. <laughs> So the guy that you didn't like that you, that you named your character after? Oh, can you repeat your question? Yeah, the, the guy that you didn't like that you said you named the character after, do you still not like him? The character or the guy? 
I actually changed his name. Um, yeah, I did change his name. Um, and it was, it was actually so silly. It wasn't like a deep, it, it was just, I thought like, oh, won't it be fun for me if I name somebody who I think will be bad after somebody that I vaguely dislike? So it wasn't sort of like a deep, you know, lifelong grudge, but... Um, so do you still vaguely dislike him? I don't care about him actually anymore. It's been so many years that it just doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah. I had to know, I had to find yeah, yeah, but but I did. I do like the character in in a in a way that initially irritated me, and then I sort of just submitted and was like, fine. Yeah. More questions? Yes. I apologize if this question was already asked, as I walked in a little bit late. But I was wondering what, if any, significance there is to the fact that you named your protagonist the same name as you, even though it's spelled differently. Yeah, so I have like three different answers to that question. Um, one is that I have sort of regretted naming her Catherine because I feel like it implies a significance that I actually didn't intend in the same way that I sort of carelessly named a character after someone I vaguely disliked. Um, <laughs> I also thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun if I named her Catherine with a K? And it was sort of a joke that I had with myself um, in part because I feel like everyone who's Catherine with a C knows that the Catherines with a K are like a totally different species entirely. <laughs> um, and I will also say that when I was a child growing up, I loved Anne of Green Gables. And she broke my heart because there is a line in Anne of Green Gables where she's talking about a character named Catherine with a K. And she says, well, I think she says something like, you know, you can take comfort in the fact that your name is spelled with a K because if it were spelled with a C, it would just be insufferable. And I was like, what? Anna Green Gables? You know, a woman that I, you know, girl that I love um, with my whole heart. And so I think since I was a child, I've wondered about these Catherines whose names are spelled with a K and what kinds of lives they're leading that are, you know, more glamorous and you know, better than mine, and so it was. It was partly my way, also, of uh, you know, in a fun way, exploring the life of a of a Catherine with a K. But I also, when I was writing the book, you know, I had all these like inside jokes with myself, but it didn't occur to me how other people would read it, and I. It also didn't occur to me, you know, when Adrian had to clarify Catherine in the book, not Catherine you, because you don't say Catherine with a K, right? I, so I didn't realize that it would also confuse me when people refer to to Catherine. Um, so, and I, I actually did think about also changing her name when I was finished writing the book, but I found that it was just her name. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. I don't, I don't know if I need this or not. Do you like Peter? Do I like Peter? Yes. Like, and, and how did the character get over what I would consider complete betrayal of her. Um, I do like Peter. I mean, I agree, like, I do like him. Okay. But note, but note, and I don't want to give too many things away, but I don't go easy on him, right? Like, it's, yeah, like, I don't, I like Peter. I feel like his great tragedy for me is that he doesn't know how he messed up, right? He doesn't know how he messed up and he doesn't know how to fix it. And 
it's like a massive failure. It's just a massive personal failure that he can't be better than he is. And so I like Peter, but I, I also don't kid myself that he's more than what he is, if that makes sense, right? And, so, and I think that because of it, you know, he, he loses something incredibly precious and he will never get to have it. And so I, I think that if I had let him have the thing, then I would hate him, right? But, but I feel like sort of the justice in it is that he messes something up and he can't ever fix it, yeah. And as for Catherine, how does she get over it? She gets over it because it's, because she didn't do it. It wasn't about her, right? I mean, if somebody betrays you, it's a, it's a wound, right? Because you might love a person who betrays you, but it's not the same kind of wound that he has to carry around for the rest of his life because he is the person who was not good enough to do better, right? She is just, I feel like I'm spoiling something, but, but maybe I'm being <laughs> properly vague, I don't know, but I feel like I have to answer this question. But, you know, like she, she doesn't have to regret who she is. That's how she gets over it, yeah. Any other questions? I have a question, actually. Sure. So your, uh, your first book was uh, well-received. Um, this second book has, seems to have kind of blown up. I mean, you've, you've received a lot of blurbs from Roxane Gay, Rebecca Mackay, Tay Obrey. Uh, obviously, all the major media outlets have, have positively reviewed it. What has that process been like for you to see that? And like, what, kind of, what was your favorite part of that? Like, is it doing events like these? Is it yes. uh, publication day? Is no, it, uh, it is doing events like these. Actually, I, I, was, I was like, I don't know. Um, it's definitely just talking to people who care about stories and are curious about stories. I love that part of it. It's, it's absolutely, like, without question, hands down, my favorite part. And seeing who solves my math problem. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, the rest of it, Honestly, it's so strange because you write a book by yourself and it's totally your thing and then you send it out into the world and it feels like then the rest of your life is just waiting to hear what other people think about your book and it feels a lot like waiting for approval, which is not something I enjoy at all. Um, but when I get to talk to people who you know either have or haven't read my book, but you know love books, then I feel like I'm among friends and I feel like the reason I started writing books in part was so that I could join a community of people who love books. And so it, then I feel like I'm doing something right. Yeah. If we don't have any other questions, uh, if we could give uh, uh, Catherine and Adrienne a round yes, of applause. Yes, thank you so oh, much. One more. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. We jumped we'll the gun. One more. We'll do one more. <laughs> so I was wondering, um, was the desire to share either you either of you really, um, the desire to share your work with other people, was that innate or was there a journey to get there? And if there was, like, how do you convince yourself that something you've done is worthy of being like sent off into the world? You're a writer, aren't you? <laughs> a little. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Adrian maybe wants to answer that. I was very eager to publish my work from very, I mean, I also made a decision very young that I wanted to be a writer. But I think because it was Poetry, I mean, I did write fiction for a while until I realized that poetry was my strength. Um, and it got, it appeared in small journals that nobody read. And I kind of got used to that and enjoyed it. And then it was a little bit of a shock when people actually started reading 
the stuff because it had felt like this private activity among writers. Yeah. Uh, but maybe because of that, it was a little bit less scary. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. But. Um, I feel like I would always feel this like combination of like dread and excitement whenever I thought, I don't know if that's what you feel when I would be like, oh, should I share my story with somebody? Um, and I don't, I think that I always had the desire to share stories um, because it felt like the most exciting way of connecting in a way. And like when I would play with my friends, we would, I would like make them act out these like wildly dramatic improbable stories. And so I feel like there was something of that always in me, but, um, but sending it out in a more public way, I, I think has always been really terrifying. And so like I would give my story to somebody and then like freak out until I heard back basically. And that actually remains true till, till, till this day. Um, so I feel like it's partly just when your fear of sharing something um, is overcome by your desire to share something. But there, they, I feel like both things always exist at the same time with me. Yeah. Okay, let's try this again. Let's give them a round of applause. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.